Well, once again, let me just extend a greeting and blessing to all of you, especially if you're visiting with us for this morning. We're thrilled to have you with us in the presence of the Lord as we worship Him in spirit and in truth. You're also very wise. You came to the early service this morning. Some of you are not normal early service attendees. I know who you are. But you knew it was Dickens of a Christmas Sunday. And you knew that traffic was going to get really difficult a little bit later. You're very wise. My family came out yesterday, as I'm sure um, many of you did. In fact, I saw a few of you there at the Dickens of a Christmas Festival uh, here in downtown Franklin yesterday. It was wonderful to meet Scrooge and Father Christmas and to nearly be arrested by those policemen um, who were downtown yesterday. Um, it was a wonderful time. Thousands of people here. We did a little Christmas shopping, as I'm sure a few of you did. Ate a little food, as I'm sure a few of you did. In fact, I was at one of the booths uh, yesterday and was looking at uh, some potential wares to take home. And there were people all around, laughter of children and conversation that was happening, questions about prices of things. And I happened to just simply look up and see the woman behind the, uh, the little bar that was there, uh, putting some things together and punching some things on a calculator. And then I just happened to notice that she was wiping tears from her eyes. It was a unusual scene in the midst of a public event and in recognition of such a joyous occasion as Dickens of a Christmas to see someone who seemed to be doing very good business, to not be very happy, very joyful. As the Lord would have it, he placed it upon my heart to just simply go speak to her, walked up to her and I said, I'm sorry, I just couldn't help but see that you're you're crying, and I don't mean to pry, but I want to ask, is everything okay? need anything? And she said, well, I've just gotten news that my daughter has passed out and is in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. We don't know what has happened. And I said, what is your daughter's name? My daughter's name is Natalie. I said, do you mind if I just stop and pray for Natalie right here? We stopped and we prayed for Natalie. After we prayed, um, she said, you know, the worst of it is that I'm not there. She said, the worst part is when you see someone that you love suffering and you can't be with them in the midst of their darkness. It, you know, in many ways, that really is the, the story of Christmas. The story of God coming to this earth to to meet with us, to be made like us, to, to dwell with us, is that he longed from all eternity to be with those whom he loved, who he knew were in the midst of great need. The spirit of the incarnation is just that. It's a spirit that moves towards us of a love that longs to make us well and right. 
As we approach the Word of God this morning from John chapter 1, I want you to hear the Word in just that way. As the Spirit of the love of God coming towards you in the person of Christ to save you, to close the gap, the space between the one that loves and the beloved. Let's look together at John chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having heard now your word read in the presence of your people, we would ask for your spirit to come and to let scales once again fall from our eyes and to let us see into the mysteries of your word and to receive them with our hearts. And for that, Father, we need you to come and do a fresh work within us right now. Help us to hear your word as you intend it. Help us to receive it believingly. And make it to be to us a powerful and transforming force. That might even in this moment, for all of us here in this room, close the gap again between heaven and earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began this series now three weeks ago in John chapter 1, looking the first week together at the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, considering uh, last week the light that is life that is Christ. This week, Looking at just one verse, 
verse 14 of John chapter 1. What we might call John's version of the Christmas story. No angels, no shepherds, no Mary, no Joseph, not even a baby to speak of in this text. John reaches back to the very beginning, the very beginning of time, to creation itself as he started in John chapter 1 with those words, in the beginning was the word. Mirroring, imitating Moses' own words in Genesis chapter 1, telling us that this one whom he's about to talk about is none other than the creator of the world. Well, in verse 14, he takes it a step further. This same word that he's been speaking about, this glorious creative word, he says, became flesh. Became flesh. Took on human form. Came in the the likeness of man. The word that said, let there be light, and there was light. The, The word that said, let the waters above and the waters below be separated from one another. The word that said, let the waters recede and the dry land appear. And immediately all of it was so. Everything that has been created was created through this word. And this word, he says, entered the very creation he created. And he did it by becoming a man and dwelling among us. Now, understandably... We've had a hard time over the years understanding the depth of what John is communicating here. Scholars and historians, pastors, teachers, men and women from throughout church history have struggled to wrap their heads around the mystery of the incarnation. This, these few words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We might argue there's no more profound words written in human history than those eight words. Some have been so bowled over by the immensity of what's being described in that verse there in verse 14 to say he must not really mean all of God or fully God. It must be just part of God or God-like. Others have argued, well, maybe it's God, but It's certainly not fully man. Maybe it's just partly man or some aspect of of man. That would help us to understand. There's no way that God could be squeezed into human form. Thankfully, throughout church history, better readers and thinkers around the Word of God, being faithful to its clear teaching, have, though recognized the mystery, the the conundrum of God becoming man. They've not rejected it by virtue of the fact they hadn't been able to fit all of it into their minds. But they have taken instead God at his word and have believed it. They believed what Paul wrote, that in Christ dwells the fullness of deity. Colossians 2.9. And yet that same Christ was made like his brothers in every way 
except for sin. Hebrews 2.17. These teachings of the scripture of being fully God and fully man are teachings that, yes, stretch the capacities of our mind, but are to be believed as the clear teachings of the word of God. Jesus is God in every way that God is God. And Jesus is man in every way that man is man, save without sin. Now what I really want to do this morning with the recognition of those foundations already in place, teachings that we've talked about even over the last couple of weeks together, I want to ask a question that I think this, this text begs. If God became man and dwelt among us, the question that that begs is, why? Well, why did he do that? Why did the word become flesh? Why did God become man? And interestingly, we don't have to turn very far in the book of John to have that question answered for us. In fact, we can turn to the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Uh, the verse that everyone knows, whether they're a Christian or not. You, you might see it on the television screen of a sporting event. You guessed it, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did God become man? Why did he, if we can put it this way, go to the trouble of descending from heaven and being made in the likeness of the humility of man, undergo the suffering of the crucifixion, to deal with the rejection of his people. Very simply because he loves us. Very simply because he loves us. And his love is so deep that it demands the incarnation. It demands the incarnation. And what I want to do is explain that. Well, why is the incarnation necessary? Why is it demanded based upon the kind and quality of love that God has for the world, for his people? Why is it that the incarnation is necessary? Why must it be? And then to do that, I want to look at the nature of true love in just three ways with you. Uh, three ways that I think we see displayed beautifully here in John chapter 1, verse 14. The first is this. True love always pursues the presence of the beloved. True love always pursues the presence of the beloved. Christy and I dated for two years, long distance. I don't recommend it. If you can help from it, don't do it. But in many ways, it was good. We had to learn how to communicate over those couple of years without each other's presence, without the, the physical body language and the, the expressions on the face and the intimacy and the closeness that comes from being in the same space together. 
We had to learn to, well, as those who are in love do, spend a lot of time on the phone together. And we did, late into the night. In fact, this was before free mobile-to-mobile minutes. This was before unlimited packages and those such things. In fact, one of the things that motivated us to get married was to think, if we could quit paying these exorbitant phone bills, it's bound to be cheaper to get married than to pay these phone bills. Now, we were wrong about that, (laughs) but it was absolutely worth it. I remember talking late at night and not wanting those phone calls to end. And, and, you know, just like, like kind of going in for a close and like, no, I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not ready to let go. I want to talk. I want to hear your voice longer. I want to hear your words sharing your life with me. I want to I express with my words how much I love and care for you and hear from you how much you love and, and care for, for me. Those words over the phone, over those years, built a relationship and, and served to keep us close when we weren't. But as sweet as those phone calls were, being with Christy in person was incomparably better was incomparably better. There was something missing, I would say, in the nature of the love which the Lord had granted to us for one another. There was something missing if all that we had were words. We needed words. They were critical. They were essential. But we needed more than words. For our love to grow into what our love was designed to be We needed flesh. We needed presence. We needed each other's persons together. When you think about what a marriage actually is, isn't it that very, very thing? It's now the, 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 it is now the, the moral righteous card that says you two can be in the same home together. Your presences can now actually be together in every sense of the term. It would be infathomable to say, let's go and get married and then let's live apart and just call each other. Nobody does that. They don't do that because the nature of the love is to move towards the person. It's to be in the same presence as the individual. True love wants to be with the person. God had from all time Past been speaking to his people. Hebrews tells us that he had communicated through the forefathers, through the prophets, in varieties of ways. He had spoken to them, but in these last days, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he has spoken to us by his son. When he says that, he doesn't merely mean, though it includes this, the words that the son spoke. That's certainly true. But he means to say that the son's presence is its own message. That the very person of the son, the very presence of the son is saying something more, something bigger, something deeper, something fuller, something more complete than has ever been been said before. It is actually the word made flesh. 
it is everything that God has said fulfilled. You know, at some point in time in a romantic relationship, as the saying goes, you've got to put a ring on it. The relationship grows to a place where the words are nice, but it's time for action. It's time for a step. It's a time for demonstrable expression of love. When the incarnation comes, the incarnation is God saying, I, what I've been telling you, I'm now going to show you. I'm going to show you with the fullness of my being. I'm not merely going to speak words. I'm going to come to you in the flesh. If I can put it this way, the incarnation is not God's just phoning in. It's God coming to us. And he's saying, I mean what I've always said. And I'm about to show you. The nature of true love always demands the presence of the other. But secondly, John 1.14 teaches us this, that true love always finds its home in the presence of the beloved. True love always finds its home in the presence of the beloved. When John writes those three little words there in verse 14, dwelt among us, there's a lot more going on there than meets the eye. The, those, those three little words, dwelt among us, are literally translated the word tabernacled. That God has come and tabernacled with his people. Not only has he been made like us, he's come in human form. He is fully God and fully man, but he has come to live with us. He's come to move into the neighborhood. He's got a zip code. He has an address. He's come to literally pitch his tent beside your tent in and around you. Now, when John is saying that, he's, of course, going back, as he's been doing all the way through this opening to the gospel, right? Going back to Genesis in the first verse of John chapter 1. Notice what he's doing here. Now he's going back to Exodus. He's going back to the story of Exodus because where was the tabernacle initially put in place but in the story of Exodus? The people of Israel coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery under Pharaoh, God leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, leading them towards the promised land. As they made that journey, God came to Moses and instructed him to build a tent. A tent called the tent of meeting and then the tabernacle. That tent, which is just like the tents, only bigger, of the people who were around him, God was saying, that's going to be the place where you can find me in the family of God. I'm going to be there right amidst your people. I'm not going to stay merely in the clouds. I've been leading you by the pillar of cloud in the sky, I've been leading you by a pillar of fire by night in the sky, but there's coming a time now as I lead you into the promised land where I want to actually come down in the midst of the camp and make my home with you. God himself has come to us in human form, and when doing so, he is saying to us, John, that a greater tabernacle has come. 
a, a greater home of God has been made among his people. That this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, is actually the very tent, as it were, of God. The very presence of God among his people. It is God saying to you, I'm here just as I promised. I'm at home with you. I'm at home with you. But it's actually more than that. It's not just that God is saying, I'm at home with you. I've promised to come. I'm here. Here's my address. Here's where you can find me. It's God saying, I've come to make you at home with me. I've come to make you at home with me. I'm coming to make a home with you in order <laughs> to make you at home with me. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, that really leads us to the third and final point I want us to look at here in John 1.14 and spend a few minutes in these this particular truth. Not only is, is true love always in pursuit of the presence of the beloved, not only does it find its home in the presence of the beloved, but we find that true love is always willing to sacrifice for the sake of the beloved. It's always willing to sacrifice for the sake of the beloved. Now, where do I, where do I see this? Well, look, look with me at that verse, John 1.14. Notice what John says. He says, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And truth. Now that word glory is the Greek word doxa. It's from where we get the word doxology. A word that is a word of praise. A word of giving glory to God. In fact, you'll hear that phrase, right? All throughout the scriptures, the prophets, the psalmists alike say something along the lines of give glory to God. And they're saying give praise to God. That's what they're saying. Now again, that's another phrase that begs a question. If someone says, give glory to God, what should be your response? Why? Why should I give glory to God? And interestingly, the idea of praise assumes that we are identifying or seeing or recognizing something to be praiseworthy. There's a reason for it. Like for instance, I just happen to be Pretty much every night this week at a Christmas party. Sometimes more than one on that given night. There were many delicacies that I was able to enjoy this week. As I would gather around the table and I would sample something. And I, would, I would pull you know, someone in beside me and I'd say, you've got you've to try this right here. This is amazing. You taste that bacon in there. You just, you just know it's in there. You know, and you just pull me in. And what am I doing? I, I'm praising. I'm rejoicing over this, this thing. Why? Because I think there's re it's praiseworthy. There's a reason to praise this thing. It's sparked within me a recognition of its, of its goodness. Now, interestingly, the word doxa typically associated with that give praise to God, an expression of praise, but the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, it's a word that means weighty 
or a word that means heavy. Now, when you hear the word weighty or heavy associated with glory, you go, I don't connect those two. What, what, what's going on there? Well, the Hebrew word is really getting underneath the idea of praise, and it's saying, what is the reason, what's the substance or the essence or the heaviness of the thing, the fullness of the thing that makes you want to praise it? What's the reason behind it? That, that, that Hebrew word, glory, is a, is a word that speaks to the very essence of something. When you get to the essence of the thing, then the doxa comes. Then, then the praise comes forward because you've seen, you've, you've encountered the essence, the, the fullness, the reason for its praiseworthiness. Well, in speaking of glory here, John, again, you know what he's doing. He's a good biblical theologian. He's taking you back to that tabernacle scene. He's going back to the book of Exodus. He's going back to chapter 40 of the book of Exodus, for instance. Where there in the establishment of the tabernacle, we see the same themes that are being addressed right here in John 1.14. When God came down in that glory cloud, what was called the Shekinah glory. And that cloud came down into the temple and it filled the whole temple, we're told, in Exodus 40.35. The glory of God came down. As Exodus is giving to us the fact that God is making his home with his people, he's moving towards his people in order to redeem and to save his people, John is saying a greater tabernacle and a greater expression of glory has come in the person of Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory. Glory is only from the Son that is from the Father full of grace and truth. We beheld it. We saw it. Now, when we read that, because it's fairly familiar language to most of us, we don't catch our breath. We don't, oh, he saw his glory. We don't do that, but you know we should. The original audience, these Hellenistic uh, Jewish you know, recipients of the gospel of John would have been completely taken back by the phrase, we've seen his glory, because they know that he's pulling from the Exodus narrative, and they know the one thing you couldn't encounter was the glory of God. They, they saw how overwhelming this was. Moses, we're told in Exodus chapter 40, couldn't enter the tent of meeting. He couldn't go into the tabernacle. Why? Because it was filled with the glory of God. God's glory, when it filled that tabernacle with man and his presence, they simply, we're told in Exodus, they don't mix with one another very well. Moses already knew this by Exodus 40. He had encountered God earlier in the Exodus narrative in Exodus 33. At a particular low point in the people of Israel's history, you'll remember it. In Exodus 32, they had actually formed, while Moses, ironically, is up on the mountain, speaking to God, gaining his promises, receiving his law. What are the people of God doing down at the base of the mountain? Well, they're forming a golden calf. They're breaking commandment one while God is giving them commandment one. Amazingly. In the midst of that happening, God, in Exodus 33 says to, to Moses, listen, I don't think I'm going to go with you into the promised land. 
I think I'm just going to send an angel with you. Because if I keep going with this stiff-necked people, that's the language he uses, referencing the cow that they had made, saying they've become like their idol. If I go with this stiff-necked people, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy them. Moses, recognizing this is a problem, goes in and speaks with God. He asks God, as it were, to reconsider. We need your presence. We can't do this without you. Don't send us without going with us. We need you to go with us. And God ultimately said, I'll go. And then Moses, very bold, in Exodus 33 says, okay, now that I'm here and things seem to be on good terms, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I can't show you my glory. No one can see me and live. No man can see me and live. This is really the, this is in many ways the tension of the Bible. The fact that what we desperately need is to see the glory of God and that we desperately can't see the glory of God. That we need God, he is both the only one who can save us and he is the one who rightfully should destroy us. He's both of those things. He is both savior and judge. That's how he's presented to us in the scriptures. He is holy and he cannot dwell with unholiness like you and me. And yet he is gracious and he is abounding in loving kindness and he forgives iniquity. Generation after generation. Those two things are the realities that are revealed. And as Moses asks God to see his glory, he's thinking, okay, well, you said you're going to go with us. You're not going to destroy us. This would be a great time to just kind of let me in on your glory. And he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I can't show you my glory because it'll kill you, but I'm going to hide you. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And as I hide you in the cleft of the rock, I'm going to pass by. And as it were, the outstreamings of my glory, we might say the afterglow, like, you know, I was here and then I left and you kind of saw the remnants. I'm going to let you see the remnants. I'm going to let you see the outstreamings or the backside of my glory. And then as he hides Moses in the cleft of that rock, we're actually told in Exodus 33 that God puts his hand over Moses. Just to be sure, just to protect him. Because he doesn't want him to see the fullness of his glory and, and die. And so God lets him near his glory, but he can't let him actually into the fullness of his glory. Now, here's what's interesting. This, this passing by is something we begin to see throughout the scriptures. We could look at a number of places to see it, but, but maybe best would be 1 Kings chapter 19. Because it's there where Elijah, in a very similar story, experiences the passing by of God's glory. At a very low point in Elijah's life. He believing that he's the only one faithful. He comes to God. 
and God reminds him of his faithfulness, and then God places him upon a rock, and he passes by in the presence of God's glory, the the outstreamings, the backside of his glory, Elijah witnesses. And God shields his servant so that he's able to glimpse but not see the real glory of who God is. Now here's what's interesting. When John says we beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth, John wasn't kidding. You see, it was John in Matthew chapter 17 that stood on the mountain like Elijah had done previously and like Moses had done previous to that. It was Jesus who had invited Peter, James, and John upon that mountain, the mount that we've come to know as the Mount of Transfiguration, a mountain that's meant to echo in our minds like Mount Sinai, where Jesus, we're told, is transfigured before them. And who is with Jesus in Matthew 17? Do you remember? On either side of him, it is Moses and Elijah. In case you didn't get it, the Bible is saying you should look back to these men. They had similar experiences, but nothing quite like this. Which is why Peter, in the midst of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, Peter, James, and John, right, they hit the ground terrified that they're going to be crushed by the weight of God's glory. But Peter, in his what looks like silliness, what does he say? We should build tents for you. We all go, that's so weird. He's actually thinking back to the story of Exodus. He's like, there was a moment where this kind of thing happened. And it was like the greatest moment in redemptive history in the Old Testament. We should build some tents. I think that's what you do now, is you build tents. And Jesus is like, no, that time is gone. This is a better tent. This is different, but yes, it is that, but it's more. And in that moment, as they cower on the ground with their faces in the mud, thinking that the way of the glory of God is going to crush them, the the next thing we hear is that Jesus reaches down and touches them and says, fear not. And all the glory is gone. And Moses and Elijah are gone. Fear not. They were afraid that the glory of God would crush them, and indeed the glory of God would crush them. But remarkably, the glory of God in Jesus is present, and it didn't crush them. He came and he touched them and he said, rise and have no fear. It's almost as if it's an echo from Luke chapter 2, isn't it? When the angels who break into that night sky with the shepherds and the shepherds cower into fear and the first words that come out of the mouth of the angels are, fear not. I know this looks like it's about to kill you. And it could. But this glory is coming in a way to heal you. To save you. It could kill you. And we might even say it should kill you. 
But in love, it's going to come to heal you. This glory, John says, would have shocked the audience. We have beheld the glory of the Son from the Father. Notice what he describes this glory to be. He gives us the ingredients of the glory. A glory that is full of truth and grace. Truth and grace. This is actually the story of who Jesus is. Do you see, in Exodus 33, that's what God had preached to Moses. When God passed by Moses, he actually preached him a sermon on his name. And when he preached him a sermon on his name, here's what he said. It's, it's, actually, it's actually pretty interesting and, and, and somewhat confusing. God passed by Moses and he said, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. And we're all going, praise the Lord. This is who he is. And he's teaching Moses this as he passes by glory. He's preaching a sermon on his name as his glory passes by. He forgives my iniquity and transgression. And then he says, but I will by no means clear the guilty. And you should think to yourself, how does that work? Like if you're going to forgive the iniquity, but you're not going to clear the guilty. How do those two things work? They only work if there is a Jesus Christ. Where the truth of our sin and all of the justice that it deserves is laid on him. And the grace is poured out on us. Only in the perfect man of the Lord Jesus Christ can God say to us, I did not clear the guilty. I poured the unmitigated wrath and judgment and punishment upon my sin. And thus for you, he is full of grace to you. Only then does the sermon of Exodus 33 make sense. When truth and justice kiss grace and love on the cross in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, when we come into Christmas, and we come into the, the joy of Christmas, if you're struggling with the joy of Christmas this year, it's probably because you're, well, you're looking to something other than the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is the joy of Christmas and seeing the Lord and seeing and beholding his glory full of grace and truth is what stirs our hearts into true joy. Not a joy that comes from the trappings of a holiday laden with all kinds of materialism and worldliness. It comes from the holiday that's truly holy when we look at the one who is the namesake of Christmas, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Friends, I commend to you this day, Jesus, the one who is full of truth and full of grace, the one who reveals the glory of God, who speaks the greatest word in flesh to us as people, that I love you, I'm pursuing your presence. I love you, I make my home with you. I love you. Because I'm willing to sacrifice for you, my beloved. As you receive the truth and the glory of God in the gospel, does it not want to make you doxa? Give a little glory to God? To that very end, we worship him.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, stir our hearts afresh this day with the glory of who Jesus is and let us see him so worthy of praise that it would be the reflex of our heart to open our lips and declare his worthiness. Come now and meet us there in Christ's name. Amen.